Let's, uh, let's read our last few verses of chapter 1 in Ephesians. And we'll pray and ask uh, the Lord's grace and look into the, the passage as well as some of those things that we've heard already this morning. <clears throat> we'll start again in verse 15. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Let's pray. Father, we worship. As we read the scriptures, thy holy word inspired, Lord, through the heart and mind and mouth of the apostle and the pen of his uh, scribe, the very word of God written to the Ephesian church those years ago, centuries, millennia, and through the ages coming down even to us, thy word as if in the midst speaking to us through the Holy Scriptures. Lord, we desire the help and presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and minds as we consider the Scriptures together. Dwell in us, O God. Feed us with thine own self and thy word, that we might live thereby. Help us to understand it aright, to receive and keep and do thy word. Father, we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> well, I appreciated uh, the testimonies. Uh, wonderful. And giving glory to Jesus, not to sin. Isn't that good? To testify how the Lord saved us, not go into all the gory details of our sins. Really appreciate that. Thank you. And, of course, he's not welcome here, friend. Um, the... <clears throat> There was a bug trying to join me on the uh, here. One of the things I note often in testimonies when we're sharing about the Lord, we take for granted the facts of the gospel, right? And that's um, and that's fine. That's appropriate. One would hope that everyone here knows the facts of the gospel that Jesus, God, so loved the world. The Word was made flesh. God clothed himself with human form and became the great sin bearer for mankind. All the sins laid upon him. And he died, was buried, and rose again. That offering for sin was accepted and preached in the world that whoever believes on the Lord Jesus will be saved, trusts in him, the obedience of faith. Right? This is the thing that I perceived in those testimonies this morning. And please correct me if I've got this wrong. That having heard and grown up with these things, where they passed from death unto life was when they yielded the will to God. Is that right? Is that what happened? Seeing a couple of nods. It's not that now the facts of the gospel became known. You've grown up in your childhood with that. But they yielded their wills to God. And that's what it is to believe on the Lord Jesus. It's not only to acknowledge the facts of the gospel. The devil does that. He's not going to heaven. He's not born again. But to will. Yes, Lord. The obedience of faith. 
And uh, <clears throat> it's, uh, yeah, it's important for us to, to understand that and to, to live that. We don't just, it's, it's not some fire insurance policy that we um, believe and then we can kind of do what we like. And, uh, but we've got that taken care of. It's the, uh, the union of our whole being with Christ. Regeneration. And it, uh, the key that we hold. Everything was done by God. Christ came. Sins were laid upon him. He died and was risen. Nothing we could do. The key on our part is the yielding of our wills. The obedience of faith. There's no faith without obedience. And there's no obedience to God without faith. All right, let's be clear on that. The person that thinks they are saved and is doing their own will is a deceived person. Uh, Jesus Christ is the Savior of those that obey him. And all God's people said, Amen. Yes, thank you. So, it's good to get a reminder of the the gospel. Thanks for visiting and doing that for us. Um, uh, We've been looking... In Ephesians, we looked at the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ. There are three things here. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, right? They're already enlightened if you're born again. You see the wisdom that none of the princes of this world have seen, as Paul, uh, Paul wrote to the Corinthians. <clears throat> your eyes are opened. You see the kingdom of God. Your, the eyes of your understanding being Oh, it's fine there. Being enlightened. They're already enlightened. That ye may know, and he gives us three things. What is the hope of his calling? What the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead? And then he goes on into the, the heavenlies and the, the glory of Christ. And I think we're going to focus on the first part this morning. Uh, <clears throat> three things there, right? What God did for you, what God did to you, and what God doing in you and through you. Three things there, right? Um, <clears throat> The hope of his calling, that's what he's done for you. The riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, that's what he's done to you. And I'll distinguish those, just to be clear. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe. That's what he's doing in the believer. In chapter 3 and verse 20, he alludes to this again. Um, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. That's the same truth. And we'll look at these things I trust. Uh, Very, very important. Now, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, right? We looked at at what the apostle means. This is not an extra spirit. You get the Holy Spirit. You need the spirit of wisdom and supplication as well. Later you'll get this uh, wisdom and, uh, sorry, understanding. Later you'll get the spirit of grace and supplication. And we'll just keep piling them up till you have a suitcase full of extra spirits. That's not what's being taught, right? We understand that the um, seven spirits of God, of which John writes in the Revelation, is another way of referring to the Holy Spirit of God. And in the same way that all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit are in the Holy Spirit, in that case, then every believer has all of the gifts of the Spirit, at least in potential. And then it is according to the will of the Holy Spirit what gifts are manifested in each believer. It's not as if, and I don't want to be irreverent or blasphemous here, but this is how people can think. It's not as if the Holy Spirit has to now go back up to heaven to kind of get that one out of the vault or something to give it to you. They're all in God. And so when we talk about uh, someone being given, it's, it's the Holy Spirit, the manifestation of the Spirit, as Paul writes to the Corinthians. The manifestation of the Spirit 
is given to every man. And so in praying that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ, Paul was praying that that activity of the Spirit of God would be manifest in the Ephesians, that they would be filled with the knowledge of Christ, that in the understanding of their hearts they would know him, that knowledge would grow. As they would read, or in their case, hear the Scriptures read, that revelation of Christ, Some of the easy ones, so to speak, that are very famous among us. You know, when Isaiah 53 is being read, it would be revealed to them that is Christ. That's hidden to this day from um, the Jews that have the scriptures. They don't have that revelation in the knowledge of Christ. And many, many, many places we can see Christ. We can see him in, in Genesis. We can see when... God called Abraham, his friend Abraham, to offer his only begotten son. And then stopped him because he was a friend of him who was going to offer his only begotten son. We see Christ in every book of the Bible. Wisdom which was the rejoicing of God's heart. Even the the judges, imperfect though they may be. Uh, We see Christ again and again. We see Samson who put his hands on the posts of the temple and the the, um, theater there for the the, um, Philistines and he bowed himself and gave up the ghost. And in his death he conquered the enemies of God. See Christ, the revelation of Christ in the scriptures, in nature. But by the Spirit of God as well. In those things which are not even written. And one must be careful and one doesn't speak of those things. Because if if they were to be spoken of, they would have been described in detail in the Scripture. We've got to be careful about special revelations that nobody else has and those kinds of things. It can be an area of error and deception. That you may know... The spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The Lord said these things himself to the um, disciples recorded for us in John chapter 16. And he's giving, he's going to give them the Holy Spirit. Howbeit, verse 13, verse 12, I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, is come... He will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself. But whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. A brief word on that. He shall not speak of himself. That word of, two possible meanings. It can mean about, right? You shouldn't speak of yourself like that, brother. You know, about or from. And it is the second one that it's meant here. The Holy Spirit is, um, of course, he will have to teach you about himself. But he shall not speak from himself. And the particular point where the Lord, you remember, the Lord Jesus has uh, said these things. John's recorded them earlier. He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory. Not as Christ who spoke about himself. And the rabbis, they didn't talk about themselves. But they spoke from themselves. They were so wanting to impress everyone with how clever they were. And so they're coming up with ways to be unique and to be famous rabbis. And they're seeking their own glory. But Christ came to speak only the words that the Father gave him. He didn't speak of himself to try and make a name for himself as a rabbi. He spoke of the Father. That is, he spoke from The Father is his source. And that's what he's saying here. The Holy Spirit, he he shall speak what he hears. That is to say that the believer receives in the Holy Spirit a direct connection and communication with God. The most basic being that which John wrote of in his epistle. The witness of the Spirit to the Christian that you're a child of God. The Spirit, Paul wrote, Beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. That's the most fundamental and basic direct communication. You just know. 
It's not that you're always walking around having to think it, although that's wonderful to think about. But there's a knowledge that is there, even if you're delirious with the flu, if you wake up in the middle of the night, the knowledge of God. Is that right? Is that your life? That's the gospel. Uh, the Spirit uh, beareth witness with our spirit that we're the children of God, right? Abba, Father, Spirit of Sonship or Adoption. He shall glorify me. Sorry, he shall not speak of himself. Whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. This is uh, the apostle is uh, in different language addressing the same thing. The spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ. Um, the most basic and should be the most well-worn for us all is in reading the Holy Scriptures. We see Christ and his things, his kingdom, the things that he had to teach repeatedly to um, sincere, faithful, but yet carnal and not yet born again disciples. Um, bristling as they were with male ego, pride, and competitiveness, the Lord had to repeatedly tell them, it's not going to be so in my kingdom. He, the, the leaders are going to serve the people, not serve themselves up. They're not going to be filled with their own aggrandizement. They're going to be looking at how they can minister and meet needs, not have their own needs met. This is Christ's kingdom. And as we... Uh, are filled with the Spirit and meditate in Him, He reveals all sorts of things, the most basic practical things, the glory that's coming, which cannot be, um, when I say cannot, it's not that it's not possible, it's just not uh, appropriate. God deemed it not appropriate to write in vivid, plain language a description of the heavenly kingdom. Paul said it himself, quoting Isaiah, um, it hath not, um, I hath not seen ear, neither hath ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man. The things which God has prepared for them that love him, but God has revealed them unto us by his spirit. Now that was true of Paul and the apostles, and it ought to be true for every Christian. Each according to our measure, a perception of the reality of heaven. Not merely a mental knowledge that whatever's coming is going to be better. I mean, that's good. That is the truth. But a, a, a knowledge of the heavens in your heart by the Holy Ghost. This is what he was praying. And brethren, want to look at, at this, um, this prayer of the apostle here. It's wonderful that you're saved. Assuming that you are. That you have trusted in the Lord. That you recognize your sin. Not just that catalog of sins that people get into. Um, some of them listed in scripture. Fornicators, adulterers, drunkards and so on. But that general sin. And we heard it alluded to in the testimonies. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone here. The prophet. To his own way. That's the fundamental sin of man can be brought up in a very decent home, a very clean home. But you're living for your own way. That's the sin that put Christ on the cross. And the Lord has laid on him. Notice the prophet Isaiah didn't, didn't list this catalog of uncleanness, although the nation was familiar with that. We have turned everyone, brethren, this is the problem with humanity. This is my problem and yours until we are born again is our own way. We're the exact opposite of Jesus Christ who said, not my will. When he was pressed to do that which was most hateful for him, to embrace into his bosom the filth and sin and uncleanness of humanity and to have it all laid upon him and to experience for the only time in all of eternity complete alienation from God. And he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. 
And this is the sinner opposite to that who says to God, Not thy will, but mine be done. That's what crucified Christ. And it is for that that a man needs to repent and be born again. If he's never sinned more than just having an obsession with stamp collecting, he's a rebel, an ungrateful sinner against God who has lavished grace upon him his whole life and has just lived to do his own will. That is worthy of damnation. Ingratitude. Think of it. Imagine, imagine risking your life to rescue a drowning person. Get, and they no sooner get up, they don't even look at you and just walk out of there. I mean, you would do it anyway. You didn't do it for thanks. But wouldn't you be appalled at the ingratitude? might know him know Christ and his ways following him this is what he said this we heard this in the testimonies follow me so he said to the apostles devout or they compromised follow me Peter and Andrew John James they were disciples of John the Baptist they had repented of everything they knew they were devout And Jesus says to them, follow me. Matthew was a sellout, compromised, believed in God. Jesus says to him, follow me. This is the thing. And you and I are to follow him. And here we are then, (laughs) looking at this passage. Paul's praying to believers. People who have believed on the Lord Jesus, been sealed with the Holy Spirit. There is so much more and the apostle wants us to know it. And so he's praying that you may know, right, a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that you might know things, the hope of his calling. This is what God has done for you. Treasure in heaven, an inheritance amongst them that are sanctified. And what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? He keeps coming back here. This is what God has done um, to you. He's laid up a, a, a treasure and a reward for you, and he has given you a place of glory and honor in his kingdom. Right? So he's provided for you riches and joy and glory, and he has made you to be somebody. Let's look at this. And we look at it's interesting the language of the apostle. First Corinthians chapter six. I'm going to bounce around between these two a little bit and get then on to the third. Because the third is the one which we have the most knowledge of. We understand in, um, trust you in 1 Corinthians 6. I'll read that again in in, uh, Ephesians. All right. That ye may know what is the hope of his calling. That word hope is expectation. Right? Um, it's not like, well, I sure hope supper's on time or something like that. And there's an ambiguity depending on how orderly or punctual we all are. Some ambiguity, I hope so. You know, it's not like that. It's my hope. It's expectation. We hope the Lord Jesus is coming back. Not, I really hope so. The word's in a rough place. But it's, it's expectation. That's what the word means. It's morphed and dumbed down over the um, centuries of... English language use, but in the scripture it means expectation. The hope of his calling. What you're expecting from God at the resurrection. That you might know that. And the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. What, um, and those two are very closely linked. That's why it's, it's you know, it's uh, almost an academic exercise, but the scripture distinguishes between them. And so the hope of his calling, that's the Um, The riches, the reward you're going to be given and linked to that is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. That's your position and elevation and glory. Let's let's look then. uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Totally off topic and the apostle. um, I mean, I don't know if you want to call it sarcasm, but just look. I mean, the apostle can be pretty, um, I don't know, rough with them. 
First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? Don't you know anything? Don't you know you're going to judge the world? <laughs> if you were me, you'd be sitting there thinking, actually, no, I didn't know that, but I'm just going to smile and pretend I did, right? This is, no, isn't that right? You don't know something that's basic and you should know it. You just keep yourself quiet and just like, just smile and hope he doesn't pick me, right? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matter? matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? Didn't you know that? Like, this is basic stuff. What's wrong with you? That's how he's talking to them. How would you like to be talked to like that? By the apostle, no less. You know? I think some might be offended. You shall judge angels. That's what's coming. That's part of the <coughs> glory. Right? That's not part of the... Um, Reward, per se, is distinguishing, right? The, the riches, the comfort, but this is part of the glory. You're going to be elevated to a position of great honor. And the apostle isn't just saying that this is the, um, the twelve, you know, us real elite. He's saying, if then ye have judgments of things pertaining this life, set them to judge who are the least esteemed in the church. You are going to be so high, so lofty, so honorable, that any earthly problems, the dumbest person in the church can sort that out for you. It's kind of the language. Forgive, I mean, the le- those that are least esteemed are well able to judge the matters of this life because we're going to be judging weighty matters. Paul wants us to know what's coming. He's writing to babes. Remember, I've said this before. A number of people are offended at this, I think. But most of your New Testament is milk for babes. Just go through it, right? Um, First and second Corinthians, he's writing to babes. He said, I can't give you meat. You're not able to bear it. Everything in first and second Corinthians, that's milk. If you're struggling with anything, you're struggling with milk. I'm just letting you know that. Thessalonians, uh, one and two Thessalonians, as a nurse cherisheth her children. Right in there. Hebrews, ye are become such as have need of milk, not strong meat. That's for babes. First and second, Peter, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word. This uh, Galatians, I labor and travail, preborn, until Christ <laughs> travail in birth again. It should give us a lot of humility, shouldn't it? The Gospels are preborn as well. This is so you can get saved in the first place. Like there's, we're really going through the New Testament. There's not a lot of actual meat in the New Testament. And so the Apostle John writes to us little children. And we think, yeah, I guess that's really where I'm at. Just a little child. Hallelujah. Um, thank you, Lord, that out of the mouth of sucklings and babes, thou hast perfected praise. It keeps us from being high and lofty. You know, we're all just in the kindergarten, really. And uh, the Lord loves us greatly. These are some of the things that are coming, brethren. You're going to judge the, uh, the world. Rule over. You're going to judge angels. Hmm. Uh, yeah. Oh, I think it's Matthew... Matthew 26, we have a, let's look at it. Is it there? No, not 26. I thought, oh, there it is, 25 then. This is a parable of the... uh, <clears throat> the talents, right? The kingdom of, verse 14, the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants, delivered unto them his goods. And, you know, it's the story, the parable, five talents, two talents, one. And, and when he came, they, you know, he brings the faithful ones. And we're not even going to bother with the unfaithful at the end. Um, 
He that received, verse 20, the five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. I forget now. I think it's about 160 pounds. A talent, I think, is 60 pounds of gold. Hebrew talent. And so five talents be 300 pounds of gold. How much is gold by the ounce? It's between one and two thousand dollars U.S. I think. Let's go with two thousand Canadian. Um, let's round it down to fifty for the sake of math. Uh, no, no. So in an ounce, that's an ounce. So let's that's thirty-two thousand dollars a pound. Let's go with thirty, and then you've got let's wind it down fifty, one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Like it's a lot of money, right? Half a million to a million dollars. In an economy, well, anyhow, never mind, where a penny a day was a working man's wage, but we won't get distracted with that. It was a lot of money. And look at the Lord's response. Thou hast delivered me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Now, and we can look at it again in in Luke chapter 19. I think it's Luke 19. About the the pound. Uh, Verse 17, similar parable. Not the same one, but similar. Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little, have thou authority over ten cities. So we have a few things going on, right? One, what to us is a lot, is put as a little and a few things. Thou hast been faithful over little. There's a million dollars. Look after it for me, will you? I'm probably under... um, underestimating that. I haven't looked up the um, value of those things in a little while, and I don't... It's hard for me to keep track of, you know... um, I was trained in the British system. So a gallon... A gallon was more. Imperial gallon. Right? So it's a U.S. gallon, an imperial gallon. I think an imperial gallon is four and a half liters. And I think a U.S. gallon is 3.87 liters or something like that, or 7.8 liters, actually. And I'm always struggling, you know, when it's liters and go and is it U.S. or an imperial? I think I've worked it out now. If we're in Canada and we're talking about gallons, we're talking about U.S. gallons, even though we're part of the Commonwealth and we have the Queen. So it's just, so I can't hardly keep track of things that I use every week. Um, let alone remember all of the Bible weights and, and measurements. But it was a lot of money. And the things, brethren, that we have in this life from God to do can feel like a lot. I don't know how you brothers feel. But I feel the responsibility to minister faithfully to my family, that I will have set before them the very best that the Word of God has to teach and offer, I find that an enormous responsibility. I don't mean that it's, you know, I, I don't want it or anything, but I find it weighty, I find it serious. It fills me with uh, it humbles me continually to think of how much better I could and should be doing. To say nothing of all the other responsibilities that come, both in the natural things of life and in the kingdom of God. And yet God thinks of those as just a few things compared to what is coming. God thinks of those as a little compared to what is coming. And let us be faithful, brethren. Every one of us can hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful in a few things. I'll make thee rule over many things. Uh, Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. And these parables, they don't go into detail. We know it's going to be joy, but notice. So you have both the, the, uh, the reward, 
the hope of his calling, and you have the, uh, the glory. All right, so it's two things and they're linked together. The one is the joy of thy Lord. It's going to be joyous. There's not going to be the heartache and the griefs that this life does bring. As Job wrote, or as is written in Job, whomever wrote it, um, man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. It's, it's inevitable. You, anyone sat around a campfire, the sparks are going up and you're going to have trouble in this life. And that's that, right? Sparks don't just, you know, try and burrow their way down the earth. They're going up. That's the whole point. It's not, how is our life like a spark? It's that this is the nature of life. Trouble. There's not going to be any of that. There should be no more crying. God shall wipe away all tears from our eyes. It's going to be joy. Uh, We shall see him. Then shall I know, even as I am known, the apostle says. All things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Is that right? God sees you through and through. And if the apostle's language was literal, that means that God is going to be as one naked to you. You're going to know him through and through if you're saved. Amazing. Nothing about God will be hidden and unknown to his people in that day. Joy, reward, the hope of glory. But also, he's glorified you. You're going to have a place of elevation and honor. I don't know what the economy will look like, and I I catch a, a meager glimpse in my understanding, I think, from these bugs that God has made for us to learn from, not to eat. Um, sorry, anyway, I won't get on that rabbit trail. Um, <clears throat> it's um, caterpillars, right? And it seems to me they're all going to be resurrected, one to glory and one to, one to honor, one to dishonor. One a glorious creature of the day and one a rejected creature of the night. But leaving that aside, they all wiggle around on the earth. And they have, I'm sure, in their puny caterpillar brains know if they have brains and more than just chemicals that respond to things they have no concept of flight and the perspective and the magnificent things they've seen we think of our friend tom and he's talked to me you know anyone that gets talking to him for very long at some point going to find out that you know one of the things he enjoys skydiving and he shared with me you know and he Anyway, I won't get into to, to, too much. I don't want to share anything to be personal. But he said, jumping out of a plane and seeing, I think, I think I'm quoting correctly, but seeing the world from there. So his heart was filled with worship or praise or something like that. So he's just in awe. Um, and most, many people have been up in planes, we've seen pictures or what have you. But just to be able to do that, you imagine a caterpillar has no concept. And they're ugly critters too, aren't they? I mean, no one looks at a caterpillar, wow, that is beautiful, that kind of creepy, especially if you step on them, like, it's just, it's a whole gnat, they're ugly, they're ungainly, and, um, and that's their life. And they can crawl up tree trunks maybe and fall off and get, get a bit of perspective, but they die and they're resurrected, and they are glorious in the resurrection, they fly in the heavens. And it's a completely different world that they could never have imagined before. And these cicadas, I think, they crawl around, they bugs, and then they crawl up a tree, and then they, they die, and then they come forth a completely new creature and fly in the heavens as well. This is how I understand it. The invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. And I seek to learn from uh, God by the things that he has made. They have no conception, these creatures, what flight will be. We cannot conceive, I have not seen, ear, have not heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But brother and sister, God has great joy for you, for me, Far beyond anything this world has to offer. And he's going to glorify. Look, it's written of Christ Jesus in uh, Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind 
be in you, verse 5, which, also was, in Christ, which was also in Christ Jesus, right? And uh, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, made it, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name. You're never going to have a name that's above every name, but God is going to highly exalt you in glory if you're faithful. If we suffer with him, we shall reign with him. Is that right? Not his crucifixion on the cross, but his rejection and hatred by the world. If we suffer, we shall reign with him. Reign with him. You're going to rule. I, I can't tell you really what that's all going to be, but it's worth looking into. Uh, I think it was John, John Bunyan. I believe it was in Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote two very, one very, very, very famous book and one less famous book, and then others that are even less famous. Um, Pilgrim's Progress, we've all probably heard of that. I mean, less but similar is The Holy War, Allegory. I think it was in Pilgrim's Progress, and uh, forgive me, it's decades since I've read it. Somebody was asking, I think it was Christian, the protagonist in his story, when it was that he felt that the flesh and all of its um, influences could feel like they had, had been completely erased, you know, it's almost like he's beyond temptation. And being, I think, a Baptist, he would have had a limited understanding of the power of the cross. Maybe that's a bit cheeky for me to say. But, but uh, he wrote, when I think of my home in heaven, that will do it. And that, that's the, the point there is when his mind was filled with the knowledge of what's coming, the world had no power, no draw, no influence. Paul is praying that uh, we'd be filled with that knowledge, that the knowledge of the heavenly would be where we are immersed, and so that we can walk as Jesus walked. He was in this world. He was extremely practical. When he did miracles, he said, don't waste the crumbs. Go and gather them up. This notion that you can be so heavenly-minded, you know earthly good, is nonsense. There was no one more heavenly-minded than Jesus Christ and no one more earthly good than he. Let's be clear on that and just knock these silly cliches out the door. The more heavenly-minded you and I are, the more earthly use we will be. That's the thing. And he dwelt, the only begotten Son, in the bosom of the Father. And these things, brethren, we're not going to find by reading these books that clever people write on prophecy, but by communing with him, by being uh, in the presence of God continually, even in the midst of our work, but by uh, meditating in his word and in prayer and the Holy Spirit impresses upon our hearts the deep knowledge of God and of things to come, the glory that shall be not only prophecy concerning world events, which is the rarer, but the world to come. The hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. These are things God wants us to know more about than we do. And only the Spirit of God can teach them to us. But the thing that affects us on the here and now, in verse 19, what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power? And perhaps we'll have to even continue that as our as we approach time for our communion, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Brethren, let us look closely at this. We, we have looked at salvation this morning just through the testimonies and then review on that. Right? What is to be saved? To, to submit to God, to yield the will, to commit and trust wholly in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, but for complete lordship of our person. And he seals, as we looked at earlier in our study of Ephesians, he seals everyone that has done that with his Holy Spirit. And so now, great glory, I'm saved. And the apostle wants us to know there's way more than we could even imagine. Right? The power 
Paul's praying for people who have been sealed with the Holy Spirit that they would know how much power is in them from God. And that's for us to pursue. And he takes us right to the point which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. If you're born of God, that resurrection power is in you. Death had no dominion over him. Let's, and we'll have to spend more time on it because we're about out of time now. Death had no more dominion over him. Death, right? The stone wasn't rolled away to let Jesus out. It was rolled away to let the witnesses in to see that death couldn't hold him. He that burst the, the, the bars of, of hell and death, no rock is going to keep him in a cave. Resurrection power, highly exalted. Then he goes on to Christ's glorification. We will obviously explore that as well. The power, in Romans chapter uh, 6, it's the same thing. Now there's two powers here going on. All right. We'll just break in in verse, oh dear, how, yes. Verse 3, know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Alright, for if we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Um, <clears throat> walk in newness of life. We'll have to look at this again. Alright, death hath no more dominion over him. In that he, and he'll go on. In that he died, he died unto sin once. And then he'll say, likewise, reckon ye yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. There's two Tremendous powers written of here in Romans 6. Only one referred to in Ephesians, but it's, the other is implied. The power of death is a tremendous power. Men can devise greater and greater means to kill, but to date they have not devised means to raise from the dead. Atomic bombs, and I don't know what they've got now, can kill thousands and thousands of people. That is tremendous power. But they can't raise one soul from the dead. The power of the resurrection is greater than the power of death. Now the power of death is incredibly powerful. It stops a man doing all sorts of sins. In fact, all of them. Death is incredibly powerful. Dead to sin. And alive unto God. Now... Can I go on a little bit to at least make this point, brethren? Matthew chapter 14. I want to understand how this works because the Christian who is genuinely born again can feel not very powerful. Now there's two things to do with that. One is to believe. But remember what we've said before. This is lovely. Keep this going. Um, is that if you lack the Holy Spirit in your life, don't get bogged down in the theology of it. Just ask your heavenly father, as he has said. Right? We've seen that. He's like your daily food. So um, don't get bogged down into the Baptist theology, Pentecostal theology, whatever. Um, just take Jesus at his word. Lord, I lack the Holy Spirit in my life. I've come to receive my necessary food. He's more willing to give than we are to receive. Matthew chapter 14. Let's get a, a brief look. Now I realize this passage has been so overworked that it's like a cliche. But uh, it's, it still has a, a point to be made. So this is where the Lord comes to them after the feeding of the multitude walking on the water. And they were afraid. And Jesus says in verse 27, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, 
Save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Now, I know that we've all probably heard sermons on this, and like I said, it can be a cliche, but let's look at a point here that is maybe not as commonly emphasized and ask ourselves some questions. How? What was going on? Let's let's ask some some secular questions. I mean, they're they're not worldly. Um, What causes you to remain fixed on the ground and not float away? What's the scientific theory of that? Gravity, right? So, what's why when you go to walk into the lake, do you end up, as the water gets deeper, you getting lower and lower down? Why aren't you walking on the water? What's the scientific principle going on there? Hint, we heard it already. Gravity and then density and buoyancy and so on, right? Okay. So, these are powers. These are physical powers that cause you to, um, you know, you to sink and a, a balloon to float or a beach ball to float on the water. What power was um, nullifying that so that Peter was walking on the water? And this is not a trick question. This is just think. Okay, whose power? All right. So God's power. Now, let's, let's follow this. Peter's walking on this water. By God's power. Alright? Where was that power before Peter started walking on the water? Okay. So this is a really important point. No, you're bang on. You're bang on. No, but watch this, brethren. Like, what happened? Could all of the disciples have jumped out of the boat and walked on the water? Right? Do you understand? Like, nothing changed when Peter walked on the water. God's power to keep Peter... And nullify the laws of gravity and all that. Was always there in Christ Jesus. It was always there. But it was not operational in any of their lives. And nothing happened to bring it into operation. There wasn't an earthquake. There wasn't lightning. Peter didn't have a crisis experience. He just thought, there's Jesus, I want to be with him and like him. And he responded to his word. But he didn't feel tingles. There wasn't an angelic um, manifestation. He just went after Jesus. And in fact, he walked as Jesus walked. He saw the Lord. His heart went after him. And he, he did what Jesus did, the impossible. And he could have done it. At any time. At Jesus' word. Now that's the key. Is that Jesus hadn't given the word. But brethren the gospel has been given. God has spoken. The death and resurrection of Jesus. Has been accomplished. The giving of the Holy Ghost. It's there. It doesn't matter if you feel. The power tingling through your veins. That you can just go out and do anything. Or if you feel anemic. If you're born of God, and this is what Paul wants you to know. (laughs) He wants me to know. He wants all the believers to know. He wrote it to the Ephesian church, but it's written in such a way that it would be circulated around the globe as indeed it has. He wants us to have the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power. So the power is an unstoppable force. What is this power? It's a power of love. Um, I think Matthew, oh yes, nothing shall separate us from the love of God, right? Tribulation, nakedness, peril, sword. Is that right? Okay, these are mighty oppositional forces, right? Um, the, the malice and hatred of men, their tortures, the, the circumstances of life, right? 
Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Now, according to this power, nothing can separate you from loving God and man. Nothing can stop you from forgiving because of the power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's an unquenchable power. It's an unstoppable power. Nothing can make you hate anybody because the power of the love of God is greater. Paul wants us to see it. It's not so far from this, oh Lord, help me to love this really difficult, irritating person. Away with that nonsense. Uh, Forgive me, but it's nonsense. Baptized into his death. There goes the old sinner. So good. He's out of the way. Raised to walk in newness of life. Jesus has come. And he's so powerful that the most aggravating person, the most hateful person can't turn away this mighty resurrection power love of God. Hallelujah. This is Christianity, brethren. It's not white knuckling it. If I wasn't a Christian, I'd give him a piece of my mind. That is so far removed from the gospel of Christ. It is unworthy of the name Christian. It's a power. Paul wrote, I hope you don't mind, uh, that's what the Bible says, so we'll, we'll stop. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 7. He's talking about Christ, right? A priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, not after the order of Aaron, right? Who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. And Paul wants the believer to know that power which worketh in us. Look at the context in which he said, and then we'll we'll go to our communion passage. More to to be continued. Chapter 3 of verse 20 of Ephesians. Now unto him that's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. What was he just talking about? That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Right? That ye may know the love of Christ. According to the power that dwelleth in us. He's writing to Christians. Who need to know that that seed of God that you received when you were born again. Is, has all the power of the resurrected Christ. To love. To forgive. To, to, to walk in righteousness. To, to walk free from uncleanness. It's a power of an endless life. It's a power of the resurrected life. And he wants the believer to know this. And knowing this, the believer <laughs> out of the boat on the water. All the laws of sin and death are completely nullified by the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Man, you could all be up on your seats jumping and shouting glory for that. But we will. To be continued. Paul's praying that we would know these things. And uh, Christ, uh, whose death we are about to remember, died that we might know these things, redeemed us. It's a true hymn, true line from a hymn. In him the tribes of Adam boast more blessings than their father. Adam heard the voice of God walk in the cool of the day. Adam had fellowship with God outside of him. The Christian has fellowship with God inside of him. Hallelujah. The mind, the power to have, as Paul wrote to Timothy, a sound mind. A mind that thinks on holiness. Mind that thinks on charity, not filled with uncleanness and malice. This is the power of the resurrected Christ. And he's called us to his table. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's take a look at this, right? And he's, um, verse 15. I speak to wise men. Judge ye what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless. Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? We're, we're going to communion now. So we're, we're um, leaving our Ephesians study to, to another time. The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, being many, are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Now Paul is bringing this in, in the context of the Christians of this day eating 
meat offered to idols and the, the controversy that, had, that caused the church. In the following chapter, he didn't write in chapter divisions. He's soon going to address the communion service generally. But I w- and that's normally what is looked at in, before communion. But I'd like to look at this. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? I don't want to set our minds a thinking here, and I know what was done as we're all fumbling. I was anyway with this uh, whole COVID thing and and infections. But uh, I tell you, I do miss the, uh, and I'm not saying this is what we've got to do. We wouldn't do anything without a discussing as brethren. But there's something about one cup. It's one cup. We all drink of one cup. Not everyone with their own little sippy cup, right? Uh, and that's, that's no, not derogatory. I'm just pointing out that he's the cup of blessing. The Lord Jesus, he took a cup and he passed it around and said, Drink ye all of it. Um, and it's, it's, um, there's a symbol in that. In any case, I'm not saying we're forbidden from doing it the way we do. I'm just noticing the language and the practice. Uh, and I understand why these things arise as well. Let's not get uh, distracted by that. Uh, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Paul finishes his second epistle to the Corinthians with these words. The grace of of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. And Paul is saying that this cup which we bless, right? The cup of blessing which we bless. What a phrase. The cup, it was, this is the new covenant in my blood. And that's made a blessing. And we bless it not by we impart a blessing. That's not the language there. But we eulogize. We, we speak well of. We esteem and Uh, adore and praise Christ who gave us this cup to do in remembrance of him. Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? (laughs) This is very intimate. Christ's suffering. The bread, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body. For we are all partakers of that one bread. There's a, a union and a communion with Christ through this service, through remembering his death. We are partaking. I know it's outward. I'm not suggesting that there's anything mystical in the actual physical bread. The only mystical thing or spiritual thing is happening in the believer's heart by faith. And then the apostle, the apostle says this. Um, the same passage. Oh, verse 21. Ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Ye cannot be partaker of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? And, and he goes on, all things are lawful for me. All things are not expedient. It kind of took my breath away. So I, medit- I contemplated that. I... Nothing. So there, there was a specific thing. It was the idol's temple, idol's meat. That was what you were speaking of. But in the thoughts of my own heart, it made me think of just this world's system and worldly pleasures, worldly entertainments, the, the things on which the world feasts and feeds. And it is not fitting for the Christian who is going to um, feed on the... Lord Jesus Christ and remembering his death with these emblems partake of the communion of his literal body to now also be feasting at the world's table. Is that, you following me brethren with that? And whether your conscience tells you thank you Lord I have had nothing to do with this world or whether your conscience braces you that, Lord, I'm never doing that thing again. That is how we need to partake of the Lord's table, that we are not 
We do not eat. We do not feed on the things on which the world feeds. We do not um, partake with them. They are idolaters in the sense that they have filled their hearts with things that take the place of God. And we are to be and come, I trust, as those where Christ is everything. More, understand this, more to me than my beloved wife or children. Right? Christ is all. He is my master. He has given me a wife and children, but they are his. I love them dearly. But... uh, Christ is all. There's nothing. Lord, I, I'm, I'm not one with the world in their intent, entertainments, their amusements, their concerns. Their, I mean, we have compassion. Do you understand? We live in the world. We want to bless. But uh, we have no continuing city here. We seek one to come. The, the apostle wrote to the Hebrews, you, you took joyfully the spoiling of your goods. We set light comparatively, by the earthly things that we possess, which we have labored for and use as necessary, but we, we despise them in the context of being Christ. That's his table. We talked about uh, in, in Ephesians the, the hope you know, of glory. Um, that's what we're partaking of here. And we're not, our heart's not set on anything of this earth. We remember, do this in remembrance of me. Remember his death until he come. And with that, looking forward to the, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the reunion. This is what he said. He took the cup and he, he, he refused it. He, he gave it to them. He said, I shall not drink of this until... The day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There's a time. I don't, I don't know that there's going to be literal cups and grape juice and all of that in heaven. But it's the fellowship. It's the communion that's coming. The, the unveiled communion between God and his people. Of which the communion of the Holy Spirit is a foretaste. So brethren, let us come. Let us remember his death. With this meditation in our hearts, we cannot eat of the Lord's table and devils, a world that we are separated unto him. Let us put from our hearts and minds and lives anything that is of a nature and a disposition of partaking of the world and be those that are Christ's and Christ's alone. Hallelujah. Brother Dave, do you understand and give thanks for the communion table and